0: Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Well, so many people on a Friday night. Not sure to find out how you can be benefited, but to find out how you can benefit other people for all eternity. Congratulations, well done. Well done, Howard Church. Thank you, Stephen Janet. What an exciting thing that Howard Church from the beginning of this year felt a calling and assignment from God to emphasize evangelism and discipling the converts to Christ. Wow. What a wonderful thing. So thank you, You're so excited about that. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for the Dwell team for leading the worship so well. And wasn't that theater production very powerful? Simple, but very powerful. While I was watching them, it reminded me again to say this, that compared to the urgent and privileged task of rescuing people from eternal judgment and eternal punishment, any other thing the church does seems as relevant as rearranging the furniture on the decks of the Titanic as it was going down. I'm back in Panta. No one shouts or anything. You know that the people were dancing and singing and totally oblivious and so happy because for some unbelievers, the purpose of life is just to be happy. And so they were getting what they wanted because... Friends, there's only two worlds. There's only two universes to live in. It's in the kingdom of heaven or in the dominion of darkness. And there's nothing in between. There's no passports to live in a neutral territory, either in one world or in other world. To be born again means to be transitioned and rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into an everlasting kingdom through the blood of Jesus into the Father's favor And to know for sure you are righteous before Him forever and embraced by the Father. Now everyone here in Pantan and everyone in South Africa is either in one or the other of those kingdoms. You cannot straddle them. You can't travel from one to the other. You can only move from one and then move to the greater one. Go to the kingdom of heaven. And I would say still the vast majority of people in South Africa are in the wrong world. Probably about 85 to 90%. And in Australia even less, in the UK even less. They were dancing on the Titanic. They were having fun. I mean, life's just to have fun, isn't it? But a few minutes later, they struck the iceberg... And from that point, whatever world they were in became their permanent address for 1,500 people. And so, what I want to talk about today is rediscovering and developing a culture of biblical evangelism that really works. Uh, Thank you, dear sister or sir. You know, on Friday night, you need to shout loud because it's just what helps you keep awake and helps me keep awake. This has been, Glendon, our most fruitful trip to South Africa by far. From, we've, we've ministered around Johannesburg and just had so, if I started telling you what happened, uh, it would take too long, but it was just phenomenal with building and blessing, with defining a team and working with a growing group of leaders and seeing the glory of God come. On last Saturday up in Johannesburg where we could hardly move and it was just so like awesome and like the most intense glory I've seen for a long time. Seeing black and white and colored and Indian encountering God. Seeing a dear, dear Zimbabwean black lady rolling up and down the floor and just getting so set free because she had just about nearly been killed in a car accident just a little before that. And I'm just talking about not just Frivolous blessing, deep, profound encounters in God. Then serious, sober building the church and bringing clarity, how to prepare for the coming move. And then been into Stewie and Jenny's church at the tribe on Sunday morning. What a highlight. Especially we said I look old. But anyway, (laughs) but he's qualified it since then, so I've forgiven him. And so many great things happened. And then been here in Durban and Blastow and meeting with 45 leaders from different parts of South Africa for two whole days, building, preparing, collaborating. And then the next day, I went and met with about 100 leaders, about 70% I knew, and I was well-connected many years ago. And I want to say thank you to Rana Melissa Matthews because I am now again well-connected to some many leaders in this whole area of Natal who once found it difficult to accept the grace message that I preached in in 2009. And I was hugged and loved by people that were upset with me in 2009 for preaching the radical hyper-grace message from this pulpit, and I'm still radically (音) hyper-grace. And I'm talking about reconnections, and now the Hawa area, the KZN area, is the greatest grace-preaching base in the whole of South Africa because Highway Church, you lent this pulpit to a crazy guy from Hong Kong. He's a little boy from Pantan, And we wrecked havoc in the spiritual realm. And we caused all kinds of re- reactions. And, and there was mature ones and immature ones. Because a move of restoration brings out the worst and the best. But it doesn't cause it. It just shows what was already there. And I and you should have no regrets for what happened in 219 because we have recycled to a higher level of maturity. We are rebooting and we're going higher. Come on, say amen. Hey! And so as many of you know, uh, Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishes of men. If you're following him, something's been made in you that wants to fish for men and women and children. Follow me. I've come to seek and to save the lost. Follow me and I will make you fishes of men. Now, I forbid you to have any condemnation about anything I say tonight. Please say amen. I forbid you to do that because this whole thing is not about guilt or condemnation. But sometimes to have a flow of electricity, you've got to have a negative and a positive. And so I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to have condemnation. I'm not trying to quote stats that make everybody feel we've failed. That doesn't inspire or empower us. We've just got to frame tonight and put into context tonight some very, very clear things. And I promise you, if you will, if you will come through all three of these uh, series, because they are sequences that are building for the clarity of the next session and building for the clarity of the next session, And these things need clarity. For the church has drifted from a true culture of biblical evangelism, the church worldwide for the last 120 years. And I want to explain what that means. But it has discouraged the church. It's made the church think fishing doesn't work. We, We we get converts, but they don't stay. We don't know how to disciple them, and so we are we are working with the wrong methods and the wrong concepts because they're unbiblical ideas that have replaced a biblical culture of evangelism up to 120 years ago. Up to 120 years ago, and I could mention all the preachers and what they did right up to 400 years back from 120 years ago, there was a culture of biblical evangelism that was really working. So let me tell you this, that 120 years ago, they did not have a more favorable culture towards the church. If if I could take you back as a church historian, back into the 1800s, we're talking about in London, or ever you want to think, dark days, anti-church days, unbelief in the pulpit, really the preaching of universalism. And in those days, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Charles Finney and back further, John Wesley, and we could go on and on with a list of names, stood up, the great grace preachers, but they knew the leverage and they knew the key and they knew the basis of how to turn hardened sinners from one world and tr- transition into the ro- realm of glory. They knew the secret that the modern church for the last 120 years has lost. So in their day, up to 120 years ago, the average fruit of converts was 80% for the rest of their life with faithful Loyal servants of Christ committed to local churches after they were converted. Now you can, you, you can check the stats if you want. 120 years ago, they were faithful, loyal disciples till so the day they died. They stayed in church and were faithful to Jesus. 80% of the converts because they truly got born again. And if you get born again, it's impossible to not stay faithful and fiery for all your life. You cannot have your heart recreated and circumcised and be filled with God and then after a few hardships or difficulties or disappointments say, that was a good idea, Christianity, but I'm finished with that trip. I'm going to try another adventure. It's impossible to do that. So 80% were still in the church at the end of their life. Today, with great research and technology and samples, the average today is five to ten percent. Of converts are still in the church only one year later. After a year goes by, that five five to ten percent goes down. And in this time, tonight, tomorrow, two sessions tomorrow, you're going to learn clearly from Scripture what. How do we address that problem? We have inherited 120 years of many counterfeit conversions. The church is suffering today. Its resources are being spent on counterfeit converts. It's got confused. Why don't they stay faithful? What's wrong with them? We try and blame the age we're living in, the technology of our age. We're saying it's an anti-counterculture Christianity age. These guys 120 years ago were living in a more hostile anti-Christian culture age. And if you, I, I'm, I am a Rhodes Scholar Rhodes University, I did world history, and I, I understand church history. And if you just go back, they were living in a more hostile time than we are. And yet they had 80% of their converts, not stay for one year, for the rest of their lives. And I with all respect to modern evangelists who have 5%, I honor every evangelist that's gone out there and had a go. But I believe, God, what I'm standing in this pulpit tonight about is as radical, if not more radical, than when I stood in this pulpit in 2009. Because we are rebuting with a clarity of the gospel of grace is going to another level, how to get unbelievers into the clarity of the gospel of grace. You don't preach the gospel of grace to unbelievers. There's something you got to do first to get them ready to understand why they need that gospel of grace. So you guys still with me? And so from the day I got born again, I was under conviction for three months, called the Holy Spirit, convicting me I was not right with God. I was lost. And I couldn't hardly breathe. And I couldn't hardly stand. And I was shivering. And I was shaking. And I was a Hare Krishna, as you know, a Hindu. And after three months of conviction, the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart. And said, follow Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is the only way. And after three months of conviction, my heart, the soil of my heart was made so ready that the seed of salvation came in at Cedar Ridge in 1978 with my Hare Krishna robes on. And I was born again in a Hindu temple. And I knew that I knew that I was born again. Went back to Sound to finish my university the degree. That was 1970 Seven, And I have not backslidden, I have not got lukewarm, I've not gone back to Hinduism, I've not divorced my wife and had five more marriages, because I got born again. And from the first time, because something happened before I got born again, it took three months of holy, penetrating, supernatural, holy conviction of a holy God that I knew I was not right with. And I became aware of terror and fear that pending judgment was coming because Christians would share things with me that made me aware more and more that all my stuff isn't going to work. And so from the day I got saved, and this is the truth, I made a commitment to try to lead someone to Christ every single day in my first year of Christianity. That's a little ambitious, I know, but 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 I failed. But I, I, I succeeded on most days. Because I volunteered to work at orphanages. I volunteered to go out on the street. I volunteered to serve in so many different areas while as being a road student. And I did lead many, many people to Christ in that first year. And since then, it's just been going to the invisible church in Durban and out on the streets every Friday night, every Saturday night, sharing the gospel, sharing why people need to get saved. got many funny, interesting stories. The one that I got hit in the head by someone, about that guy got led to Christ and I'm so glad he was a homosexual prostitute and I led him to Christ. We got him back to uh, Namibia and got back to his praying granny. He was very excited to hear he got born again. But I was deaf in this ear for three weeks and then Chris Viena prayed for me and my ear popped open again. So there's So evangelism is so exciting. You get punched, you get punched, you get rejected, But you don't get bored. And it keeps your prayer life alive. It makes going to church exciting. It makes Bible studies exciting. It makes prayer meetings have an eternal purpose. You know, people that just got into grace and they say, oh, we're all dressed up in grace now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What do we do with this? What the heck do you do with that? You save the lost and then disciple them. And so after my first year, then I went to, It'd be a teacher at, 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 uh, at Westville Boys High School. That's a government school, not a Christian school. And the guys were on drugs and there were, uh, there were pre- pre-marriage pregnancies going on there between the girls' school and the boys' school. And it was chaos. And there was, and other people just life is normal. It's just, there's a big problem, yeah. I got in there. I thought, where are the Christians, yeah? And I found 15 little boys, 12 and 13, in standard six, standard seven all the first team rugby boys weren't Christians, teachers were I mean, they weren't interested. i got those 15 boys. I said, hey boys, see, when you, you have dominion, you have kingdom authority, whatever jurisdiction and sphere of favor God's given you, as soon as you walk in there, you're going to know this isn't Sunday morning church, but I've got authority, I've got dominion, this is my sphere of influence, and you take dominion, you take authority in that area, stop backing off and letting people intimidate you. So I said, hey, I've got those 15 boys. I said, okay, Okay. this school is going to hell and we need to change things in the atmosphere here. So I, your sportsmaster, uh, who was just, uh, I looked like them because I was that young and I could hardly shave. And uh, I said, I, your sportsmaster, I'm coming to school half an hour early every morning and I'll be praying that the glory of God and the power of God sweep through Westville Boys High School and conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment will flood this place and we'll see hundreds of young men saved. And they said, yes, sir. And they came, about 12, 15 of them. And we prayed. Chrabba taught them how to pray in tongues. And we prayed for, it was only about five, six weeks, something like that. And the power of God began to move over the school. And then then I said, okay, I heard God say, okay, take the team teaching room. They could seat several hundred, an elevated team teaching room. I took that and I started preaching to the front few rows, telling them about Jesus, and, I, and, the, and the secret I'm going to tell you about in a moment, telling them about Jesus, and the kingdom, and, and all of this, and these guys getting saved, I'd lay hands on them, they would speak in tongues, uh, uh, Rob that comes to this church, he was one of the praise worshippers there, but anyway, anyway, and, and so, cut a long story short, I only had two years there, but in, in that time, 600 of the 900 schoolboys. 600 got born again. 600. 600. 600 coming to SCA. On, 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 on Tuesday and Thursday, the playing field was almost empty. Six to 700 boys were in. We moved from the team teaching to the big hall. Yeah. That's how it should be. The kingdom people should take over by the power of God. Yeah. And I had so much opposition from... Outside, I'm not going to mention it now, t- time's too short. 600 young boys. Ben said the whole rugby team was saved. The first team was saved. The first team, Roger, Roger Owens, he got saved. The first team coach got saved. The whole first team got saved. And when I left that school, because I went to go full time to pass the VFC that I'd been leading for 10 months, I gave a speech to the whole staff. And I told them, and I read from the scriptures, and I preached to them, and told them. I said, bodily exercise profits for a little while, but godly exercise profits for all eternity from the book of Timothy. And I said, I've loved being a physio teacher now, but I'm going to do something now that is going to change people's lives forever. And I, I preached to the whole staff. See... We are the salt and the light. And if the salt loses its saltiness because it goes, I'm just a grace bird and I just fly where I want to. I just sit in daddy's lap all time and let all the world go to hell. No, we are here to work. We are here to get going. Paul worked hard. We are God's workmanship. Jesus said, the harvest is so big. Pray for workers. I can feel things are holy and healthier. Loftus Fairfield, whatever it is, there. You remember? Some of you remember. I came to preach there, on, on the on the field out there. Ik Bolivia. Ik get Okay, Cholofte. I went out to preach there. A couple of churches worked together. This was one of those churches working together. The the tent could seat several thousand. When we got there, they had to lift the flaps up because there was another thousand standing around the outside. Then the electricity went off. Devil was not happy with that, so we sang without electricity. And the electricity came on, and I preached. I just had three no anyway three Red Bulls before I got there because I was so tired. I've never had one drop of Red Bull since because I never went to sleep that night. And people thought it was the anointing, but it was Red Bull. I mean, I was like, I was like. I've never had a Red Bull since. But there was some anointing there. And I used what I'm going to tell you today and tomorrow, what people used 120 years ago. I used that. Those of you there, you might remember. When I gave the altar call, people didn't walk up like this. I'll try Jesus. They came. Some say 400, some say 500. Let's just say 300, but I can tell you they came. Three, four, five hundred people. They poured out. They didn't come like a little charges because I used the secret that I'm going to tell you about tonight. And then Grant from Maritzburg uh, Church. Grant and Sue Crawford. They asked me to come to do an evangelism thing in the new building that could seat several thousand. So I preached and I used the secret that the, Charles Haddon Spurgeon knew and Charles Finney knew and John Wesley knew. I used the secret in that service. And I tell you, when I had the altar call, I think it was 400 people came forward. All I know is that Grant told me the next week they had a baptism service for that service and the lines of the new converts wanting to get baptized when from inside a big 2000 seater building, all the long way out, far out into the car park. Now when, when, when someone who comes to the front is back there the next week to be water baptized, you know something has happened in their heart. And I could tell you stories from around the world about the thrill of seeing people come to Christ. What a joy. There is nothing more exciting. And I'd love to tell you more stories, but let's just read. Let's, let's, How many many of you love the thought of, or the the assurance that you're going to heaven? It's, It's just an amazing thing. I just know the day I got saved, Jesus took the key to my cell in hell and evaporated it. And it's locked forever. Heaven is the guarantee of those in Christ. And I know that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and we are redeemed from the curse of the law for all time and eternity. You people above all know that. But the unsaved are not in that position or in that condition. And and um, how many of you know that when we get to heaven, there'll be only two things we cannot do? Two things we can't do in heaven. Can you guess what they are? Amen. Well, that, that was good. Amen. <laughs> That was very good. Amen. Who are you? You are s- phenomenal. But you're ruining my meeting by being so clever. <laughs> no. Now, there's two things we can't do in heaven. We cannot lead the lost to Christ. And we cannot sin in heaven. So, so why do you think the Lord's keeping us here on earth? And why do you think First Peter 3 says, Peter says, God is delaying the return of Christ? Why? He's talking about because He wants all people to be saved. So the delay... He's not keeping a church on earth because he's saying, Oh, I feel so sorry for my believers, my sons and daughters. Because when they get to heaven, they can't sin anymore. It'll be so terrible for them. Friends, sin will be so boring in heaven, you'll never think about it again. He's not keeping us on earth so we can sin. He's keeping us on earth so we can reach out to people on the edge of fire and death and judgment. Let's look at this 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. I think it's all in the New King James. Let's read it together. 1, 2, 3, go. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Isn't it it a wonderful thing to know that it's God's desire that everyone be saved? Did you notice it didn't say, uh, it says he will have all men to be saved. It didn't say for all men are saved. He didn't say all men are saved, but I desire they come to knowledge of the truth that they saved. Because that's what the universalists say. Everyone's already saved and lost Adam. And they just need to know the truth, the self-realization that they're really saved. Oh my gosh, they're going to smash that today and tomorrow. He says he will have all men to be. That's a future reality. Don't play with the tense of scripture. He would have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the Truth. That is the desire of our Father. Every human being, all 8 million or 7 billion people on the planet are a target of His love. Heaven's atmosphere is flooded with joy when one sinner repents, Jesus says. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents. And there's a fragrance, there's a, there's a, there's an intriguing atmosphere in heaven that will come over a church the moment that church says we give ourselves to the discovery of a biblical culture of evangelism that we as a local church will become a combined harvester, pulling the nets in together, developing the frame and the theology of the condition of the lost. And what is the secret that would bring them to Christ that 80% would still be serving God all the days of their life? Let's recover what has been lost. For those people, such a glory comes over them and favors them. There are people that are saying, we just want more power, more power. We just want more glory, more glory. God's saying, for what? For what? To self-indulge it? For more for yourself? No. If we want more power, let's take farther. The lost are our inheritance. The unbelievers are our inheritance. And discipleship is nothing more than giving new converts a pattern of life to follow. That you come early to church. You're at the prayer meeting. You're in home groups. You're tithing. You're faithful with finances. That you become what you want the new converts to become. Chickens, when they're born, will follow a duck or a mongoose. Whoever leads them, they will follow it from the time they're born. They think that's their mother. God help new converts born into churches with people that are just spiritually lazy and indifferent and passive and indifferent. Well, it's not in this house because you're here on a Friday night. Discipleship is not just giving people Bible studies. It's giving them a pattern of life to follow. That's all I needed. I just—I can name the men and women that affected my life. It wasn't just their preaching. It was their humility, their honesty, their passion, and their consistency. They, they were mentors and fathers to me. Every one of you can be mentors and fathers and older brothers and, 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 and coaches. You know, have you forgotten what it was like when you first got saved? Man, I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know where I was. I, I just didn't know what was going on. And I'd go every week to someone and ask them all, oh, because I was just reading through the Bible, and I'd ask this person every week, what does this mean, what does this mean? And sometimes I think he didn't know the answer, so he just made it up. But anyway. <laughs> How many of you know the Groot Gat, the Kimberly Hall? Yeah, sure. yeah, sure. yeah, sure. The Kendafan.. Yeah, I was there. Combat School for nine months. They, they try to kill us, I think. In fact, they nearly succeeded. But we went to visit that. The biggest man-made hole in the earth. We've got some big things in South Africa. <laughs> big faith. The It's a monster big hole. And the question is, how did mankind build, dig that big hole before we had modern technology or modern equipment they dug it with their fingernails, their hands and buckets and picks. How did a, a mountain, they removed a whole mountain of dirt, and then dug a grush under that mountain. How did they do that? What motivated them? Because little children were playing on the side of that hill, throwing stones at one another, and one picked up a, one of the biggest diamonds known up to that time. And suddenly they realized there's something precious in all that dirt. And because they saw the preciousness of what was in that dirt, they were prepared to get into that dirt and get dirty and do anything that was taken. And as a result of seeing something precious in the dirt, the biggest hole in the world was dug with human hands. When the church wakes up to the Father's love for the lost, we'll be prepared to move mountains. Jesus said that heaven sees every human being on this earth as as precious as a pearl of great price in a plot of land. And heaven is prepared to buy the whole plot to get one person because heaven sees them as a pearl. And Luke 15 just resounds and resounds with the joy of the lost coin being found the joy of the lo- of the 99 sheep being found the joy of the prodigal son coming home all of heaven is rejoicing at every lost person that is brought from that world into god's world can you say amen so so now we need to just look at this thing uh uh, you've got to hear the love the love motive for reaching the lost. Can you hear that, please? Because when we planted Victory Face Center, I thought, Lord, how are people going to come to the church? I mean, we've got 10 people from the Invisited Church. Now we've got the warehouse. and How are we going to get them to come? So I, I thought, well, I've been on the street often. So I just sat, stood up in Hill Street or wherever it was. Is Hill Street still there? With my guitar and started singing worship songs and crowds would gather. Then I'd preach the gospel and our little team would go out there and We'd reach out, and that's how some of the first people came to our church. Just by, you know, some people just want a pulpit. You know, they said, like, "Let me inherit everything." <laughs> no, you ugly thing, go get and inherit your own thing. Start from the dirt, work it out. Get out there on the streets. And I remember driving to the place we were going to do the outreach once, and I felt like a fear. And I said, "Lord, I don't want to do this." And He said, "It's because you're afraid." I said, "Yeah, I am," because you know I have been made deaf once before out there. And so he said, son, love, perfect love casts out fear. But he said, perfect fear casts out love for man. And he said, the reason that you're afraid is you've got you on your mind. But if you think of what I think about lost people, and believe me, when I went in the streets with Glenda and Hill Street there, you know what the Jehovah Witnesses were out there? The flirty fishermen were also out there. David's weird thing where they used sexual Uh, agendas and seduction to win people to Christ. They were here in the streets. But not many born-again Christians. Remember, I forbid you to be condemned. So we've got to get back to this thing of why the dismal results, 5 to 10%. Only 95% of Christians in the last 120 years, 95%, Never lead another person to Christ in their whole life. Those are the stats. Only 5% lead someone to Christ. So therefore, 95% preaching, teaching on Sunday mornings, costs of buildings for them to be in, inner healing, sozo, discipling, conferences, guest speakers, praying till they go bald. It translates into 95% never leading one other person to Christ. In the Barnier reports, the investigation of a theological sociologist in America, they did a survey on a great sample of churches. And they asked the American church, what do you think the primary purpose of the church is? And 85% of Americans said, the primary purpose of the the church is to look after me and my family. And 15% said the primary purpose of the church is to see the lost saved and disciple them. No wonder. And why is that? I'm not blaming people. I think because we have not had a biblical culture of evangelism, the options or the methods we're working using are not really working that well. There's some fruit, and thank God for any fruit of anyone being saved. But I believe what's going to happen tonight and tomorrow is, is equally, maybe... Equally important to what happened in this book in 2009. So two things happened. 120 years ago to 100 years ago, and Toza, Tozer, Tozer A.W. Toza, one of my favorite devotional theologians, prophets, A.W. Tozer was warning about 70 years ago, if we do not identify this issue as the church, the faith of our fathers will be lost for future generations. He warned and warned as a prophet, that methods and strategies that had no support of Scripture were being used for evangelism. And he said, the church's conduct and behavior is no different from an unbeliever. And he said, there's no voice warning and saying, this is wrong. Well, 70 years later, friends, I've been in the ministry for 40 years. I've been a Christian for 42 years. And I've never seen a time with so much opportunity, especially with the millennials, they are a precious generation. God's getting ready. If you give them eternal value and a purpose, they're going to grab it. But if you give them a silly little weird pseudo grace message with no battle or passion or, or, or something to win for or live for, they're not interested. And baby boomers, we better be the most passionate. We better be more inspiring than the millennials. Come on. I don't care if they know a computer better than you. You know other things far better than they could ever know. You've got something called experience, and they're looking for mentors. They're looking for people that have survived decades in the kingdom and are still naive, innocent, in love with Jesus, in love with the church, in love with the Word of God. So two things happened about 100 to 120 years ago. Number one, the church drifted away from the Bible diagnosis of the true condition and state of unbelievers the church began to have a wrong diagnosis and a wrong idea of the true condition of someone who's unregenerate, who's in first Adam's death. They had, we drifted into a more humanistic idea of the state of the lost. And as a result of a wrong premise, we began to develop techniques and strategies to win the lost that were absolutely absent of a biblical basis. Did you guys get that? You're fast, eh? Because that's that's the pivot. A wrong diagnosis of the true biblical revelation of the state and condition of a lost person to, to fail to see a biblical truth on their condition will mean we will use strategies and methods that have no scriptural basis, that are incentives that are entirely humanistic. It is bait without a hook in it. You get a lot of nibbles, but no catches. So if someone has advanced state of cancer in their brain and it is operable, but it has to be diagnosed quickly and the doctor misdiagnoses it and underestimates the severe death sentence hanging over that person's head and said, no, nah, these headaches are... That's, it's, uh, there's nothing really seriously wrong with you. And so they say, look, just take a couple of Panadols for a week. And what we've done... With the wrong premise of the condition, the desperate, death-like state, the danger, the traumatic danger of people that are outside of Christ. Because we've underestimated their true condition. We have given them a Panadol religion to solve their problems. And counterfeit conversion. I just think there are multiple millions of people go to church who are never born again. They counterfeit converts. They were brought in with the wrong incentive. So let's let's have a quick look at the condition of, of unbelievers. One of the first misguided view, I don't know about you, but I heard this as a young Christian, that every unbeliever out there has a God-shaped vacuum inside. And every unbeliever out there is looking for God. And it sounded so good that I bought it. Man, I just need to go to someone and talk to their God-shaped vacuum because I believe this was the truth. But unfortunately, the Bible rejects that statement and contradicts that statement absolutely. If you find anyone that's searching for God, an unbeliever, and they're searching for the living God, then that's the only reason for that is, is some believers use the secret I'm talking about. And the anointing of the Spirit has touched their hearts and awakened the desire in them. But according to the scripture, nobody seeks God. Every unbeliever, the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed because ever since the beginning of creation, the invisible nature of God is clearly seen. But, but rejecting the light, they darken their minds and worship created things rather than the creator. And Re- Romans 3 verse 9, 10 and 11 says, no one searches after God. There is no God-shaped vacuum in the condition of the lost. They are looking for gods, but not the God of all gods, Jesus Christ. They're looking for some new age God that says, keep your sin and I will make you happy. Now don't go so quiet there. It's the truth. When you see someone searching for new age gods, don't think, oh, they're on the way for searching to Jesus. No, they're not. They're searching for something to make them happy. Let's read that. Let's read, hey, let's read the Bible. Evangelism, culture from Scripture. Well, Romans 3 10 says, as it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. Oh, we're in the King, old King James. There is none that seeketh after God. Okay, none that seeketh after God. New King James would be lovely. But anyway, okay. It said, Let's read verse 20, verse 11. Say it, read it loud with me. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now God say vacuum in there? Well, the Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. Yeah, that just means some people know that they're going to live forever. They're not seeking God. They just know. They just believe, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Okay, let's read the New Testament. This is written after the cross. One, two, three, go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed unto them, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Is there another verse after that? Yeah. Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we think there's a God-shaped vacuum, and because I was a hardy Christian, it means I was searching for God. Now I was seeking some sort of meaning in life. I wasn't seeking for the creator of the heavens and the earth, the holy God. He's going to deal with all my sins. I didn't want to have God deal with all my sins. His missionaries that don't understand that. They go to some place in the world and they get there and they, oh, we're so happy. All these poor heathens, they just never heard the gospel. They're all going to love me. No, they don't. Actually, some of those missionaries come back home totally discouraged because they went there with an unbiblical culture of evangelism. They went there with the idea of the heathen just waiting to hear Jesus loves you and he died for you. Oh, thank you so much. I'll get saved. Now, you tell that to a person without using the secret I'm about to tell you. You tell them, cushy, cushy, cue. God loves you. God loves me. It's a cushy, cushy, Q. Jesus loves you and he died for you. They are offended by that. They well, Why would he do that? How do I know? The Bible teaches that. Glenda got saved before me, and she was crying, and she said, Rob, if you're the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you, for your sins. I said, well, that is so stupid. I used that word, that is so stupid. What a waste of time. Who does he think he am, that I needed him to die for my sins? I'm okay, actually. And I don't need any God. Because i got lots of friends, i got a lot of drinking buddies, and I go surfing, and before I married Glenda, I had lots of girlfriends. I wasn't a lonely, empty vacuum man, and some guru came to fill that place. I was dead in my sins and transgressions. I was under a spirit of disobedience. I hated God. Ephesians, The book of Ephesians, Colossians says, we were at enmity in our minds against God. Because Adam and Eve, they said, hey, devil, this sounds like a good deal. We can eat this fruit and then we can become God without God. We don't need God. But I could do with a little guru that makes me happy, but lets me keep my sin. Are you guys still with me? Do You think I'm exaggerating this? No? We've seen enough, haven't we? Let's look at Acts 26. Well, before we go there, I want you to, yeah, let's go there. Acts 26. Let's move on. We finished what time, Steve? Nine? It's always bad matters when the preacher asks the time in the pulpit because it puts everyone else under pressure. So sorry, I shouldn't do that. It's bad etiquette. Acts chapter 26. We're just getting through all of this. So tomorrow we can go further and we can, I can start talking about the secret and how you use it. Now, I'll start on the secret tonight. We'll, <laughs> now, I'll, I'll, start, I'll tell you about the secret tonight. Some of you know already. I'll tell you about the secret tonight. And I'll tell you a little bit how to use it. But tomorrow we'll go into more practical detail on how much fun it is to share the gospel. To, to in, not share the gospel. You don't share the gospel first. You share the secret first. That prepares people to want the gospel. Otherwise, you're casting pearls before swine. First, give them understanding why they need the gospel. Amen? So, here's Paul, who is, as you know, a Jewish rabbi, and he has an encounter with Jesus. Now, these are words that come from the throne of God. This is Jesus speaking to a Jewish rabbi who's not born again, but he gets born again in this encounter. And... He is speaking words to Paul. Jesus, the head of the church, is talking from heaven after the cross. And he is not saying to Paul, Paul, go out there and tell everybody they are already forgiven, they are already saved, they are already on their way to heaven. He tells them to tell the people what their true condition is outside of Christ. Now, in case you misunderstand me, on the cross, Christ has saved everyone. On the cross, He has forgiven everybody. On the the cross, He's redeemed everybody, but the New Testament shows us, in order to get out of our lost condition, we need to repent and understand why we need grace, amen, and so that we can receive forgiveness for our sins. And so, so Paul, Jesus tells Paul four things, Paul Paul gets saved. He hasn't been baptized yet. He hasn't gone to fundamental Bible classes for new believers. And he's already been told, I've called you to win the lost." That's what I heard when I got born again. The moment I was born again, I knew I've got to get other people saved. I knew I was deceived for 20 something years. 23 years, I've got to get other people saved. So as soon as you, see, if you're saved, you're going to see now. If you're saved, your spiritual eyes are open. You're delivered from the power of Satan. You're taken out of darkness, which is confusion and ignorance. And you're brought into light, which is insight into the appropriate, righteous, holy, divine punishment and judgment you deserved. And suddenly you awakened to the appropriateness of that judgment against rebels, against the majesty of the heavens and the earth. And when you see that and your eyes are opened then you are ready for the gospel. But before you see that, you are not ready for the gospel. And when you get saved, like properly saved, and your eyes are open to how terrible the condition you were in as a lost person, you want to make sure you break everyone else out of prison. Because now you're horrified at how deceived you were. Look at verse 26, verse 11. Paul speaking, and I punished them often in every synagogue. Oh, old King James, not so bad. I haven't read it for years. You guys don't have a new King James? You guys must move into the new age. <laughs> okay, this is good. We'll use this. And I, and I punished them oft, which means often, in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon as I, it's quite actually a lovely language, that old English. Whereupon any millennials yeah, this this is how we used to talk. When King James was around, old chap. It's rather beautiful. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midnight day, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me. And them which journeyed with me, and when we were all fallen to the earth, see when God's glory comes, something happens, you get saved. I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, oh, I find this powerful, I get moved emotionally. Jesus talking to Paul, so, saw, so, why persecuted thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, you little prick. No, sorry, against the pricks. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So there's still a bit of part of me that's not saved. Okay, <laughs> the devil made the devil made me do it. No, it, he did not make me do it. Hard <laughs> oh, for thee. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Christians are not pricks. So stop kicking against them. Anyway. <laughs> Actually, I know what the Greek means there. It's, 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 You're going to hurt yourself doing this. Don't touch my people. Jesus said, don't touch my brides. It's going to hurt you. You touch my bride. You're going to hurt you, man. You touch my bride. It's going to hurt you. And he said, Paul said, who art thou, Lord? He asked the question and answered it in the same phrase. Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Was, was Paul persecuting Jesus? No, he's persecuting the church. But when you touch the true born-again church, you are offending the king of kings. And he's going to come and do some pricking on you. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, from the people means the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to the Gentiles. Now what? notice what conversion means. Verse 18. To open their eyes. Number one. Open their eyes. That means they are spiritually blind. They're not seeking for God. No one seeks for God. They're literally, hopelessly, spiritually blind. New agey stuff is spiritual blindness. It's blindness to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Astrology. It's insane. Worship the God who created the stars. To open their eyes. I was a Hare Krishna and I was spiritually blind. To open their eyes and to turn them. Say turn them. Does this sound like someone's already saved? And turn them from darkness to light. Unsaved people are blind. They're in spiritual darkness. I don't care if they walk on water. Because there are gurus in India who do very supernatural things. But they're going to hell, man. They're totally confused. When Moses threw down his rod and it turned into a snake, Moses, the Pharisee, you think that's good. Hey, come on, spiritual gurus, throw your rods down. They throw their rods down. They become snakes. Hey, they can counterfeit it. But hey, Moses, one snake ate up all of their snakes. He just gobbled up all the snakes, All gone. This one superior snake come from God, this come from devil. So don't think because people got spiritual power, it's God. But we got the greater power, infinite power. In fact, the Bible says in Colossians 2.14 that the devil, principalities, powers, and authorities have been disarmed and made a public spectacle of and triumphed over. So that means they still have power, but they don't have legitimate authority to use that power. They 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 that God's canceled their lease from first Adam and all authority in heaven and on earth is now given to Jesus and the authority of the kingdom is the only legal legitimate righteous authority The devil has no title deeds to the earth anymore. He's been cut off from first Adam. Last Adam has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are not trying to colonize the earth because I don't like colonizing. Because then people crush the people and put their culture on it. We are not colonists. The the world was colonized in the Garden of Eden by a devil. The earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything in Eden belonged to God. And he gave Adam and Eve authority and dominion to deal with the serpent. The serpent had no authority over Adam and Eve. Eve could have smashed that serpent with a little finger. But they were deceived as to the nature of God by the devil. And the devil colonized the world and he took over the world. Revelation says that he deceived the whole world. So when Jesus has been tempted by the devil, he offers him all the kingdoms and the splendors of this world. And Jesus doesn't say, Ah, you can't offer that to me. I own it. No, the devil had borrowed the authority off first Adam. And Jesus just resisted him. He didn't take this world. He didn't take premature inheritance because he knew the moment he was raised from the dead, sat down at the right hand of the Father, he'd have all authority in heaven and on earth. So he's called the church with all authority to disciple, not just individuals, disciple all nations. What does discipling all nations mean? we imposing a kingdom culture on the world illegally? No, we are restoring what God, His image of heaven was meant to be in the earth. The devil colonized the world illegally and illegitimately. We are colonizing, we are not colonizing the world we are restoring the world to the culture of heaven. What are apostles about? You don't need to be apostle ding and this apostle that. What an apostle. Apostles are to bring the culture of the image of heaven back to the church. And then the church brings the image of heaven back to the earth. Listen, colonizing is a horrible thing. But don't feel guilty as whites that we came and colonized, yeah? Because hey, and, and black tribes don't feel critical of what's because you were all colonizing each other before what's ever put a foot on the ground in africa you were killing the hell out of each other the zulus were taking over everywhere and stabbing and taking the women and having babies with them and they people were making slaves of each other before what people taught them how to do that it just became more famous because america got involved when they started taking people out there but don't don't think one color is more evil than the other color because none of us sought after God. We were all heathen. Whatever our color was, we were all under the power of Satan. Our eyes were blind. We were in darkness. We were lost. And a little bit of spiritual Panadol was not going to solve the big problem of the cancer. So we are not colonizing. I don't want to colonize the world with Christianity. I can't think of more anything more ugly than that. The image of the church in Christianity. No, we're bringing the culture of the kingdom. Because it's His. And one day He's going to say, Time's up, boys. I'm taking over everything. Whenever it's not in His world, when He calls time's up, it's going to go to a permanent address in another world. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan. Say it with me. From the power of Satan. Jesus, the head of the church, is telling this church tonight, that unsaved people are under the power of Satan. Blind, spiritually, in darkness. You've got to turn them to light. Turn them away from the power of Satan. That day. Say that with me. That day. All three things must happen. Open their eyes. Turn them out of darkness. Get them out of the power of Satan. All those three things must happen first for the fourth thing to happen. If you don't do those first things, listen carefully now, your secret's coming. If you don't do those first things, three things first... You can't lead them into the fourth thing. That they, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. That is in me, Jesus is saying. People cannot receive forgiveness of sins until their eyes have been opened spiritually, they're taken out of darkness and set free from the illegal power of Satan. And a little Panadol's not going to do that. You can give them some little incentive and they come to church thinking they saved, but they've got a dead nature. It's not seeking the living God. They're just seeking the perks. And the first time they face hardship or pressure or difficulties and disappointments, they say, this Christianity doesn't work. This, No, this Christianity works. When you're truly born again, the main thing is to get forgiveness of sins and to get delivered from darkness and demons. And then you understand that in this world, you're going to have lots of battles, lots of suffering, lots of difficulties, lots of tribulations. Because you never bought in to get rid of that. You bought in because you saw you needed forgiveness of sins when your eyes were opened. Before your eyes were opened, you just thought, I need a lack of wife, a lack of car, I need that. I need a lack of church that treats me like just right, eh? No, nah, it's not treating me like that. I to hell with this Christianity, man. Yeah, no, because you've got a counterfeit conversion. You're still blind in darkness. not you. Still, they're still blind in darkness under the power of Satan. They've never received forgiveness. They've never been born again. They've gone through discipleship, castles, can't even quote the Bible. But you know what? The devil quotes the Bible often. He quoted it to Jesus. Now I want you to look at Colossians chapter 12 to 14. Because you will see here, How universalists quote scripture and are so cunning and crafty and wicked. Because Paul writes as if, as in the past tense. But we know, though he's writing in past tense, he is writing to a believing community. Are you with me? So they'll read this and say, you see, they're already, they've already been translated out of darkness. They've already been brought into the kingdom of light. And then as I said, it already happened before you were born. But we've just read what the king of the church said, Jesus, after the cross to Paul. So what this is saying is before you were converted, you were in that condition of death. Now this is what's happened to you. This is what's happened to the saved. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. How many are born again? People say, I have been delivered from the power of darkness. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness. And hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. All right, just give the Lord a clap for that. That's beautiful, good news. Okay. All right. It's not judging people, but in the absence of what I've just told you. And the reason why I couldn't just start talking tonight about the secret and how to use it in a fun way with unbelievers. You don't have to be mean. You can smile when you're talking to them. Like be a Jesus to them, you know what I'm saying? But while you're doing that, you are cutting their hearts to the very core. Amen? When Peter got up on the day of Pentecost, First New Testament message preached. So no one say Rob's gone back under the law, which is such a joke. I mean, that's the most funny thing I've ever heard. Rob's gone back under the law. Then Peter must have gone back under the law. Have you heard the first New Testament message after the cross? Peter preached a message. Would have lasted about 15 minutes. Then they interrupted him. They stopped him preaching. Oh, I long for these days, In Jonathan Edwards' time. He'd be preaching, and as he's preaching, the, the sinners. He'd pre- he said the whole. He realized that most of the church in the eighteen hundreds was not converted to Christ. They were church attenders, so he would he would fast for three days, come into the pulpit, and just read from his notes. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, quoting from the New Testament, by the way, Hebrews ten. And as he was preaching. The uns, unbelieving believers or the of converts by the hundreds would cling to the poles of the church and start screaming because they felt like they were slipping into darkness and into hell. So powerful was the presence of the convicting Holy Spirit. And they said, oh, oh, pray for us now. He said, quiet, you show the fruits of repentance, you're not convicted enough. That's why 80% of their converts were faithful for the rest of their lives. Today we say, I'll give Jesus a chance. He's a little bit better than Buddha. Similar, but a little bit better. If you just say, Come to Jesus, he'll give you peace. You've missed the whole point. That's Panadol religion, man. That's no power to save them. Come to Jesus, he'll give you peace. i will say to you, Yoga gives me peace, Running Comrades gives me peace. Fishing gives me peace. Pornography gives me peace. If if, if the issues come to him for peace, the world's got lots of options for peace. Cocaine gives me intensity. Heroin gives me peace. We don't want heroin addicts to come to Jesus because they want peace. We want them to come because they need forgiveness for sin and rebellion against God. If our gospel is just for broken people, then, folks, what about the people of, of multi-billionaires, got a great marriage, great children, great car, and great future? You come to them, we'll just give you peace. God will give you prosperity. or will give you financial blessing. Now I've got billions already. So no, actually, that's not what the gospel is about. It's because you are spiritually blind. And you are dead in your sins and transgressions. And you've overused the weight of eternal judgment. And you're waiting to face a perfect judge who's so holy and his mercy and justice does not contradict each other. And when he's finished prosecuting you, there will be no false trial. Every part of your life will be investigated by the scrutiny of the exactitudes of the spirituality of the eternal moral law. And you will be found utterly guilty and you will drop into eternal judgment. We we, we think the gospel is only for poor people. So, because we have misunderstood this, so we think, well, let's go to poor countries and get thousands saved, and then we offer them peace. Listen, the poor gets as counterfeit converted as the wealthy. Because we fail to understand the true condition of lost people, many modern pulpits teach that Jesus primarily came to save us from discomfort, He came primarily to save us from unhappiness, negative experiences, bad self-images. This has produced a new age Jesus, another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. A therapeutic type guru who panders and serves our every whim and need. But the Bible teaches that Jesus came to save us from the formidable evil of sin and from the guilt and the condemnation and the judgment of the appropriate righteous wrath of a holy, loving, pure God. So let's look at another scripture quickly while we're here. We are nearly finished, maybe two hours more. No, we will finish on time. We will finish on time. I'm about to give you the secret. All right, Titus, we're going to read Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and this scripture tells us the exact reason why Jesus died on the cross. Not all the other reasons people say. If you follow him faithfully, yes, he'll prosper you. Yes, he'll bless you. Yes, he'll help your marriage through difficulty. Yes, he'll give you peace. All of those things. But that's not why he came to save us. Let's read what the Bible says he came to save us. Okay, here we go. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Let's read it together loudly. One, two, three, go. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Notice verse twenty-fourteen again. This is why he died. Not for your little piece of self-image. Not a little guru. He came to, he, he came to redeem you from the wrath that you deserved. Now, in this world today where people, people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's not a question. It's an accusation. Secular humanistic darkened men and women have put God in the docks and we the people of the world have become the jury to prosecute God's integrity. Like that's how darkened men have become. There's only one innocent human being that was treated unjustly. The rest of us, we are bound for what we deserve unless we repent. And if you've done that already, praise God more than a Panadol. You are righteous in God for the rest of time and eternity. You are His beloved, fully accepted, and you are free from the law. But this is why Jesus came. And we need to tell our new agey, politically correct world this. Verse 14 again. Who gave Himself for us that we might feel peace and happiness and prosperity and never get insulted or offended again or rejected or betrayed. And if we do, we have a right to leave the church, sulk, take other people with us, and lie and get on Facebook and hate everyone we can. Well, you would think that's true looking around what's going around the world. Because we are suffering 120 years of an absence of the secret. He gave himself for us that he might Redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That should be in the gospel. That should be in the secret, isn't it? Okay, you still with me? All right. He said, Well, Rob, I know what the secret is. The secret is the goodness of God. Wrong. See, we have been so conditioned over so many decades. To believe things that are not supported by Scripture, as we were with law and grace, and then when we stood up here in Johanna and we preached all the way through hell and back and smashed all kinds of stuff, and there were reactions and blah, 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 all around this city for about ten years, and hopefully a few days ago there was a wonderful reconciliation, connection with people, and embracing the gospel together to serve each other and on each other. But this thing. A true biblical culture of evangelism is going to have to be systematically reestablished with hard work. Let me, let me just say before I go back to the goodness of God leads to repentance that we like to lift that verse out of its, out of its context. It does, it's a very scary context what that means. So we're about to see something what the secret is. The secret is different to the bait. If you're a fisherman, you've got to use the right bait. Say amen. Okay, so what, I, what, what people call the bait, they think it's the hook. You got me there? You think if you just put out bait, you're going to catch people? No fisherman just throws bait out. What you doing? No, I was tying bait onto the end of my line. Well, I've got some butts. <laughs> Thousands cast later, you just fed the fish. So don't confuse the bait and the hook. And don't say, oh, that's horrible. Rob a hook, that's deceiving people. You give them bait and then you've got a hook in there and they get caught and they get sucked. Hey, listen, when they arrive, at the other end of the you drew, where you reel them into, they'll be so happy. Because they're not coming against their will. Don't take the illustration too far. But we've confused bait and hook. Bait is what makes the, the church attractive. It makes our lives attractive. So doing good works is a good thing because it attracts people that they sing the nature of Christ in you. I mean, we just had dinner with Jackie and Alec Marat in Hillcrest last night. Jackie knows everybody in Hillcrest. Wherever you go, you can't go anywhere. Oh, Jackie, they'll come around. i kiss her she kisses them, And she tells me the whole life story. Everywhere we're going. Because she shows the goodness of God. She's got this connecting, nurturing nature. And so good works in the community, like you guys cleaning the streets. Powerful. gets It gets the city's attention. It's the bait. It's not the hook. Didn't catch anyone. Attracted people. Very important. Now listen to this one. It's going to confuse a lot of people, but you're not because you are highway people and people from other churches. When you join Yah, something happens to your brain. It just gets washed by the water of the Word. Signs, wonders, healing, and miracles. They're not the secret. They're the bait. They're not the hook. No one gets saved through signs, wonders, and miracles. Africa and India has had signs and wonders happening all the time. The greatest signs and wonders in Africa and India. And yet most of India worships demons still. Pakistan. Signs and wonders. You go there, you can just... Point your finger and people get out of wheelchairs. Still not saved? This Guru Jesus is doing. Hey, wonderful miracles. Are you going to believe in Jesus? Oh no, no, I'm I'm Muslim. So the secret is the hook. And Christian apologetics is not the hook; it's the bait. I think it's wonderful when people can intellectually argue the scientific support for the veracity of Scripture. I mean, I preached in, in, a, in, a, in, in, a, in a basketball stadium where our church met in Adelaide, Australia. We're the fastest growing church because we knew the secret of how to get people saved properly. And so we had signs and wonders that attracted people. But I did two sessions packed. Thousands of people. Two sessions, invited the city, invited some of the top university professors in evolution and uh, the vice chancellor of the Adelaide University. We had to packed up. I did months of study on creation versus macroevolution. I'm not going to bore you with the details now, but I could talk to you for hours on the subject. It's, it's so fascinating how well scientifically backed creation is versus macroevolution. Microevolution within the species is quite consistent with Scripture because God created all things after their own kind. So Dalmatians and, you know, Rottweilers and Poodles are all different, but they all come from the DNA of a dog. They didn't didn't become something else. And there's no change from one species to another. And there's no scientific mechanics to explain transition from one species to the next. And so forth. And I got up and I preached this and I had all the overheads and I studied for hours and hours. And I spoke to the vice chancellor of the university. Afterwards, and he came up to me and he said, that was fascinating. That was incredible. So in other words, he now believed that the reality of a creator is feasible. That's all it did. It attracted, it didn't save him. Then his passing words to me as an elderly man, he said, but I was in the Second World War and on the beaches, my close friend was shot and killed by the Japanese. How can a God of love allow that? He walked away from me. Two weeks later, he was dead. Whatever world he was in at that time, that's his eternal address now. Apologics, signs and wonders and miracles, good works are the bait. Now that night, I put a hook into science because when he walked away like that, when I preached that night on evolution and did the next stage, I put the secret in. The hook. And people got radically saved. You can have all these symposiums with all these intellectual arguments for the veracity of Scripture, for the historic validity of Jesus and His existence and His resurrection and why evolution is a complete stupid lie. Blind faith, religion. And you interest the fish with the bait. But unless we know their condition, their true condition, we're not going to use the secret. If we really love them, we need to use the secret And I'll introduce the secret in a few minutes. And tomorrow, (laughs) I will explain some simple, practical ways how to use the secret. How to get under people's barriers. How to ask them questions. You don't even have to preach to them. You don't even have to be a preacher. You can just ask them questions. And they fall into the ambush all the time. (laughs) You just lead them up to the garden path. And then you introduce the secret. And they realize they were wrong something convicts them. So we've heard this over and over again, that the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. Out of context, a misguided concept. What Paul is writing there is that the wrath of God has been revealed because no one has an excuse. Romans 1, we've just read it. And yet mankind suppresses the truth and rebels against the majesty of the heavens and thinks their travesty of pride and arrogance is going to be tolerated forever and ever by this almighty God. Which great king and sovereign prince or king would allow subjects to ab- absolutely spit in their face and be so to promote ideas that so contradict his nature and promote such ungodly iniquity. And then that great king with all that power would just keep ignoring it and letting it go on and go on and go on. Now the only thing that Stops God bringing judgment on this world right now is that He's been patient to give people time to be saved. So, what is goodness leads to repentance? The context is it's the goodness of God that doesn't just wipe us all out now. But He says, the longer you take planet Earth, the longer you take planet Earth, that righteous, clean, holy wrath is storing up and growing in intensity. That's what the Scripture says. So please, never tell someone again, oh, the goodness of God leads people to repentance, so we just got to be good to you, good to you. That's bait. Good works is not the hook. You all got that? So let's, let's read it. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. For the great... Oh, no, that's... Okay, that's Titus. Romans chapter 2. Oh, there we go. Beautiful language again. Look at that. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance, which means patience, and long suffering, which means even more patience, not, not not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and imper- impertinent heart, treasure what? is up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, I don't know if you understand that language, but other translations will make that clearer. Amen. Okay. Are you going to come back tomorrow? Can I finish on time? So I don't have to finish this. You can get the secret tomorrow. Uh, I've got no hook in it. I'm looking for a hook. (laughs) I can't help it. I love fishing. Linda fishes for compliments. No, sorry, I mean. Okay. (laughs) So what this is really saying is that the sentence of death and judgment is on all peoples of the earth unless they've repented. And it's only as goodness, it's only as goodness, it's only as goodness that is temporarily holding judgment back for us to repent. But the longer we delay, the more the wrath is building up and being stored up. That's what we've just read. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist preacher in the 1800s, was an amazing man. You should read about his life. He said that the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present until in and and they will increase more and more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty the course when once it is let loose. We get so used to the mercy of God that we just think His tolerance means He's not offended or angry. I can tell you the Bible says that God you know, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against him. That is the truth. That's what happened at the cross. But how did that work with Herod, who let himself be worshipped in his purple robes, and he let the people worship him, and God sent an angel from heaven who killed him, and he was eaten up of worms. See, Herod's got to add a bad... God let Herod get away with so much. If you read Herod's history... What he did is disgusting. And he just kept doing it. Finally, he says, I'm a God. And his big mistake was that the church was in a time of revival when there was a lot of glory manifested in that area. And so the judgments of God just broke in and killed him right there. See, this world has come into such delusion about how anemic God is, that he's a semi-senile Santa Claus. He's a sweet little domesticated pussycat. I wouldn't worship a God like that. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Self-sufficient, self-existent God doesn't dwell in eternity. Eternity dwells in Him. When you meet this God, you come into His presence and you hear His voice and you read His word, you should tremble. When I preached at Glenridge in about 2001, training on evangelism back there, place was full every night and for whatever many nights, 100 to hundred plus would come forward. And I'm not going to mention the name, but he's a Sharks player, he's now retired, one of the tallest, biggest, strongest men. He came running forward because I preached the secret. I put the hook in. And after the service, Rory took me to the back where these 100 or more repentant sinners were making right with God. Some of them were on their knees. And this big Sharks player, If I said his name, you'd all know his name. I watched him standing there, shaking—not that fun, fun shaking in the anointing. He was shaking under the horror of the things that he had done in his life, and his sin became so clear to him that he knew he needs Jesus. No incentive—that wasn't bait. That was the power that God put in for us to use before we give them the gospel to prepare them to be truly born again. And it irks me and it aches my heart to see people casually come out. I'll try Jesus. I know they're not going to last. I don't have to be a prophet. I know that they're not born again. I know what's in Scripture. I know what happened in my life. I know what I've seen. I know I've got friends that got saved under the secret that are faithful decades. And they've been through hell and back. And they've been betrayed and abused. And they still love the church and love church leaders. And they know how to forgive because they are new creation. They are born again. Our time is gone, but I will pick it up. This is a beautiful place. Perfect. We are set up for the secret tomorrow. I'm starting with the secret tomorrow. So be on time in case I start the secret before you get here. (laughs) So stand together, please. Thank you so much tonight for just being out here tonight and receiving the word like this. Two more sessions, and uh, we are making sure everything's recorded because I think the devil, it's not like I think he's so big and powerful, but he'd love to just collapse the technology and waste all this preaching time. I'm not giving him ideas. He dare do that, I'll prosecute him. And God will turn around for good, so. But there are people that want to be here tonight, but they couldn't make it, but I can tell you, I believe, and I decree this, will you decree this and agree with me on this? That these teachings, three teachings, are gonna go around the world. And they're gonna restore a biblical culture of evangelism that really works. And that there's gonna be repentance in the church. Not out of morbidity and condemnation or worldly sorrow, but out of godly sorrow say, so how could we be so dwarf? How could we have fallen into secular, humanistic spirit of this age techniques to win, try to win the lost without the clear secret that's so evident in the New Testament? And in generations when they used it, in a time that there was so much darkness in the land and hatred against the church, An unbelief. When Charles Darwin announced his theory, which has now been totally debunked by modern science, but when he announced his theory, the world got got so aggressively angry with Bible-believing Christians. And many believers, from the pulpit to the pew, began to reject their king because they weren't born again people. And in that time, God raised up prophets that discovered the secret. And they began to preach like the first century church preached. And it will work in modern times or in ancient times because it is eternal. Why don't you just lift your hands?